And let me just invite you to bow and pray with me as we begin our look at God's word. Father, we call to you as our hearts grow faint. And we would say with the psalmist, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Do that now through your word and the power of the Holy Spirit to the honor of Jesus, whose name is above all names and in whose name we pray. Amen. I'd like to welcome the Columbus folks that are joining us this hour. It's good to have you guys as part of the congregation. There are sermon notes available in the foyer, and uh, you might, there's some actually in the bulletin, but there's also a manuscript in the foyer. And if you've taken a look at that, you've seen the title of today's sermon, The Confusions of God. Now, that title itself might be confusing to you, and if so, I'm glad, because if we're going to ever get the book of Job, we're going to have to enter into the confusions that were going on in his mind. And they were confusions that were caused deliberately by God himself. Now, I don't know about you, but if you, like me, grew up in what Joe Stowell calls church world, uh, in all of your Sunday school classes, this is probably something of the picture that you were taught of God. God is good and kind and loving. He cares for us as his children, and he wants to provide for all of our needs. He is merciful and gracious. And yes, he is also just and he will punish sinners. Is that the picture you got in Sunday school? That's the picture I got. And is that an accurate picture? Yes, it is. That's correct. That's true. Every single bit of it. But the challenge is we believe those things in our minds and then suddenly out of the blue, we run smack into life. Or life runs smack into us. And we're left wondering what in the world is going on. Life for Job was running as smooth as melted chocolate. And suddenly out of the blue he got bushwhacked. He got smacked around. He got run through a buzzsaw. And as Job on the other side of the buzzsaw sitting there on the ash heap with everything that he had known lost and gone from him, scraping the sores on his body with pottery, he looks back and he discovers that the buzzsaw was none other than God himself. And his categories are blown apart. Job, to put it mildly, is confused by God. Chuck Swindoll said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's what we're going to do today from the book of Job, is learn a little bit more about who this God is that we serve. A.W. Tozer said, left to ourselves, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. And the problem is that God is not that kind of a God. And Tozer goes on to say that God can be known by the soul in tender personal experience while remaining infinitely aloof from the furious eyes of reason constitutes a paradox or in simpler terms, confusion. But 
herein lies one of the great beauties of our Christian faith. We believe certainly all the things that God has revealed in his word, but we then don't go and stick our heads in the sand and ignore everything going around us. But rather we can take and look at the world as we see it and the world as we experience it and we can try to integrate it into the truths that God has taught us in his word. And that's the genius of the book of Job. It's not a pie-in-the-sky treatise about the doctrine of God. It is a nitty-gritty, unvarnished, raw version of a man who ran through the buzzsaw of life. And he looks back and he tries to put the pieces together in a way that makes sense with what he knows is true about God. As much as the book of Job appears to be a treatise on human suffering, and it is, it is even more an exposition on the character of God. And so would you join me as we continue our study in Job and try to discover who this wonderful, awesome, and yet confusing God is that we choose to bless when we worship him. Let me just give you a quick outline of the book. I know we've been in it a couple of weeks and you may have sort of forgotten what all is going on. Here's a a very simple, clear outline from Uh, The NIV Study Bible, actually. And again, these notes are available in the manuscript if you don't want to write all this stuff down. The prologue, chapters 1 and 2. Dialogue, chapters 3 through 27. Then there's an interlude at chapter 28. Then monologues. There are three monologues in this section at the end of the book by Elihu, God, and then Job. And then finally the Epilogue, And that was a neat way for me to put the whole book together. Now, if you'll see today, we're doing chapters 22 through 31. And when I saw that Mark had assigned me 10 chapters, I was about to complain. Then I realized that he did 19 last week. So we we can hopefully get through these. And we're going to be focusing our attention on chapter 23. Uh, So keep your Bible open to that text. But we'll be going back and forth a little bit. And here's how our our section for today sort of outlines. Uh, Eliphaz makes his third speech. In 22, then Job responds in 23 and 24. Bildad chips in his final contribution, and then Job responds to that. Then chapter 27 is sort of a summary, a concluding statement by Job. Then we come to our interlude, a very different piece of literature in the middle of this whole book, a a poem about wisdom. And then we start the monologues with Job's uh, 29, the blessings of the past, 30, the sufferings of the present, and 31, the innocence of the sufferer. Now, last week, Mark called Job's friends the packagers of God. And I like that. Because Job's friends had all of their theology neatly put in a box and tied with a ribbon on top. They had it all put together. And when they were confronted with evidence to the contrary, they simply closed their ears and repeated the same lines, only a little bit louder. That's all that we get in the rest of the cycles of speeches of the friends of Job. You see, some of us are confused and we don't want to be. They were not confused and they should have been because they didn't have it all put together. Here is their box, their theological box, and we'll call it box one today. They believed that suffering is the result of Sin. Look at verse 4 of chapter 22. Is it for your fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. 
Now, the friends had intimated this before, but now Eliphaz comes out very clearly and he says it. Job, you're a sinner and you're a terrible sinner at that. You can't even count all the sins that you've done. And the question is how Eliphaz knows that. Well, the reason he knows it is because he believes this box to be true and, and all that is true. And so he sees Job suffering and therefore Job must be a sinner. And he sees Job suffering greatly. And so he says, Job, you're a great sinner. Simply because it, it has to be if this box is all that you have to work with. Now, Job had earlier challenged the friends to, to give me some evidence. Tell me, if you think I'm a sinner, what have I done wrong? And so in chapter 22, Eliphaz does that. Verses 6 to 11, he manufactures some sins that he thinks Job must have done. And Job later on in the book, in 29 and 31, goes through and actually denies each one of those and says they're not true. But in Eliphaz's mind, they had to be true because this box is true, even if they weren't true. Do you get that or are you confused? They're locked into one box. Now, Bildad in chapter 25 makes the shortest statement of any of the three, perhaps because he's the shortest man in the Bible. Did you know that? Bildad the shoe height. Okay. Yeah, sorry about that. We, we couldn't go through Job and not say that. But the reason that he has the shortest speech in the whole cycle is that he has nothing more to say. He and his friends have run out of ammunition. They are low on fuel. They are fresh out of ideas. And so Bildad just repeats everything that they've already said. In chapter 25, he says, God is so great and awesome that no man could be righteous in his sight. Therefore, Job, you're a sinner and therefore you're suffering for your sin. Conveniently ignoring the fact that Bildad himself then must be a sinner. And so why is Bildad not suffering for his sin? Miserable comforters are you all, says Job, and worthless physicians. But how were they as theologians? Just take this box a minute and look at it, and what do you think about it? Is that box true? Another trick question. Yes, that box is true. They weren't wrong. But we know that this is true because it, well, it makes sense. If you do bad, you should be punished. But more than that, because not everything in life makes sense, this is God's revelation. Clear back in the Garden of Eden, what did God tell Adam and Eve? If you sin... You're going to die. And they sinned and they died. Suffering is the result of sin. Now, we don't know exactly when the events of this book took place, but if the reference in chapter 19, verse 24, to an iron instrument is any indication, Job probably lived somewhere late in the second millennium B.C. Because iron didn't start to be commonly used in the Middle East until about 1200 B.C. And if that's the case, then... Job lived after 1400 B.C., which is when the law was revealed to Moses. And in the law, in the Pentateuch, God says this again and again and again. He says, if you disobey me, I'm going to punish you. And if you obey me, I'm going to reward you with blessings. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy 28, the entire chapter is a description of, first of all, the blessings that you'll receive if you obey God. And then a longer description of the curses, the bad things that will happen to you if you disobey God. And it's fascinating to go through that list. And here are some things that you'll discover. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 18, there's a curse on your cattle. 
Remember what happened to Job's cattle? Verse 20, you will be brought to sudden ruin. Verse 25, you will be defeated before your enemies. Remember chapter 1? And then the kicker is this, verse 27, if you sin, God is going to give you boils and festering sores and the itch. Well, duh. The good Dr. Eliphaz looks at Job and all of these things have happened to him. And so he makes the perfectly reasonable diagnosis that you are under the curse of God. And you must be under the curse of God because you must have failed to obey everything that was written in the book of the law. Not only that, but this principle is still true today. God says in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. And you remember what Jesus told the invalid in John 6, whom he had healed after 39 years of 38 years of being an invalid. Jesus said to him at the end, now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. God does punish his children whom he loves. Suffering may be the result of sin. And in our haste to find another reason for suffering, let us not forget this possibility that God may in fact be disciplining us. Well, there's another box out there and it sort of is the background to the whole book. And I, I want you to work with me just for a few minutes as we explore this box. It's a corollary box to the first one. And it's a box that says, Blessing is the result of righteousness. This too fits perfectly with our sense of fairness. This too is revealed in scripture as we saw in the Torah. In fact, Joshua 1.8 says, If you will meditate on God's law and obey it, you'll be prosperous and successful in everything that you do. This is a principle of scripture. But interestingly enough, this is exactly where Satan decides to attack God. And here's his point. Satan says that this truth, while it is a truth, he says that this truth is the very reason and it is the only reason that Job obeys you. Because it pays. You see, in this system, he says, any religious interest is ultimately only self-interest. And if this is the only box out there, then God becomes a divine cosmic vending machine is all that God becomes. The coinage you have to put in is not inexpensive. It's obedience. But once you've put that in the machine and press the button, then the treat comes out. And what Job is saying in effect is that, I mean, what Satan is saying in effect is that Job is nothing more than a well-trained dog. He has been conditioned by divine Pavlovian techniques to respond to certain stimuli. Job has learned to avoid those actions that cause him pain and to repeat those actions which bring him pleasure. And that's all that's going on in your world, Satan says to God. You're pleased that Job is so righteous. That's no big deal. All he is is a, a conditioned animal. Now, Satan's point is not so much that this truth reduces man to the level of an animal as it is that this truth can reduce God to the level of a machine. You see, there's no glory for, let's say, electricity in the fact that I refuse to put knitting needles into an outlet, something I tried once as a toddler. 
There's no glory for electricity in the fact that I plug my toaster into it so that it will turn my bread into toast. I have no relationship with electricity. I don't love it. I just use it. And if it ever stops to serve me, I'm done with it. And this is exactly what Job is saying about God. He's saying all you are is this great big force out there that blesses everybody who obeys you. There's nothing intrinsically valuable about you as a person that would cause a human being to continue to follow you in the absence of your blessings. And so Satan says if we could somehow sever this link between righteousness and blessing, then man would be exposed for the selfish sinner that he is. And God, you would be exposed as the brute and the manipulator that you are. See, there's much at stake in the book of Job and at stake in your life and mine. If somehow people could continue to love and to follow and to serve God because of their personal love for Him in the absence of His blessings, then God would be a worthy being indeed, is what Satan says. So God says, fine, let's check it out. Well, back to our text. This is the background. Job makes an objection to the friend's box. Because as he looks around the world, he sees... Some other realities. And, and he argues back in chapter 21, the, the chapter right before our section today. In fact, look at chapter 21, verse 7. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Verse 30. The evil man is spared in the day of calamity, and he is rescued in the day of wrath. Job is saying, now wait a minute. If, if box one is all that we have and box two alongside it, then why do I look out in the world and find evil, wicked people living in peace and prosperity? Job is saying there's got to be another box out there. You see, it's kind of like saying something like this, that accidents are caused by slippery roads. Now, is that a true statement? Yeah. Um, you, well, it is kind of true. Accidents can be caused by slippery roads, but it's not the whole truth, Right. Because you might have some other realities that happen in life. You might have, for instance, an accident that is not caused by a slippery road. Or you might have a slippery road that doesn't cause an accident. We need to be more nuanced in our understanding of the realities of the world, says Job. And your one box, box number one, does not explain everything that I see in the world. It is accurate, but it's not adequate. It's correct, but it's not complete. And so we need at least one more box because I've seen that not all who sin suffer. And we see that in our world today. And Job's point is this. If there is a box three, perhaps there is another box that can explain what I'm going through as well. And so we come to box number four. There is more yet in Job's observation of the world and in his own personal experience that he needs to explain. Stuff that he cannot fit in to boxes one, two, or three. There's not room in there for what he's going through. So Job now is beginning to understand that there is a fourth box out there. And here's Job's experience. He sees that not all who suffer 
sin. First of all, he said that not all who sin suffer for their sin. But now he's saying on the flip side of that, not all who suffer are suffering for their sin because I'm suffering and I'm not suffering for my sin. And yet Job is confused in this box because it doesn't feel very good and it doesn't make sense with his Sunday school understanding of what God is like. So I'd like for a few moments to enter into Job's world as it confronts him on this day that we're dealing with in this cycle of speeches. Job's confusion. First of all, let's look at his innocence, a foundational argument to the book of Job. And God has already said, we've seen in chapter one, that God himself said twice about Job that he is blameless and upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. Job himself has already claimed that he's innocent. But now that Eliphaz has come out and bluntly said, Job, you're a wicked sinner. Job feels like he has to respond with equal clarity. And so in verse four of chapter 23, he says, I would lay my case before him, before God, and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There, an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Job is saying, I am so innocent that if I had a chance to argue my case before the court of heaven, I could convince God to acquit me. That's how confident I am of my innocence. In chapter 27, in verse 2, he takes an oath. He says, as God lives, I will hold on to my integrity. I will not admit that I am suffering for my sin. And all of chapter 31 is a fascinating claim on the part of Job to be innocent of sin. Uh, read through that sometime. Job takes 16 times. He uses the expression, if I have done this, and then he lists 16 uh, of sort of all of the sins you could ever think of. Then, God, you can do this to me. But at the end of the day, he says, I've not done any of those 16 things. And therefore, God, I'm going to sign my own legal brief in my hand and I'm going to present it to you and say, God, prove me wrong. That's how confident Job was of his innocence. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that Job was not a sinner, because from Romans 3.23 and other passages, we know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Neither is Job saying, because I'm righteous, I deserve to get into heaven, because we know that that's not true either. No man can earn his way into heaven. But what Job is claiming is this, is that it's a matter of comparative piety. He's saying, look, if, if a relatively good man like myself, with no major flaws, is suffering for his sin, then why do I look around at the world and see less good people not suffering for their sin? He is innocent in the sense that he doesn't deserve the things that God has brought on him. And he is correct about that. And so with this point firmly established, we see that we need another box. And that's why he proposes box number four. But Job, in the middle of this trial, also feels very much abandoned. And you need to remember now that Job is not conducting an experiment on suffering. Job is also not aware that he is the subject of an experiment on suffering. This is very much real life stuff for Job. It's not a reality show that he's on. It's not even the Truman Show, an artificial world that he will one day be able to escape from. This is real life for him. 
All that he had and his ten children were violently taken from him in one day. And on another day, his health was cruelly snatched away from him. And, and even his lifelong companion, his wife, in the end, gives up. And she says, Job, just curse God and maybe that will make him strike you down dead and you'll be done with this life. And so Job, in the middle of this situation, has nobody left to turn to. All he has is his righteousness, his integrity to cling to, and he does that. But he also thought he had God to hold on to in the middle of his trial, and he finds that even that does not appear to be the case. He feels abandoned by God himself. Look at verse 2 of chapter 23. Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and so forth as we read earlier. Job has nobody left in this life. He cannot connect with God. Over in chapter 30, verse 20, he says, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. Job says, God, I've served you all my life. I've walked with you in obedience. I've loved to pray to you. And now in my time of deepest need, I can't find you anywhere. I I look for your works and I can't see you anywhere out there. And when I call out to you, all I get is silence at the other end of the line. Job feels abandoned by not only his wife, but his God as well. And the result is that it leads him into despair and depression. The end of chapter 30, verse 31, he says, My lyre is turned to mourning and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. And beyond that, it leads Job into, in fact, bitterness itself. Chapter 27, verse 2, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter. Job is lost in box four because it hurts and he's all alone. But worse than being abandoned by God is to be terrorized by him. That's a strong word to use of God, but that's how Job felt. He said in chapter 13, verse 21, for instance, withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. And look at chapter 23 that we read earlier, verse 13. But he is unchangeable and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me and many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am what? Terrified at his presence. When I consider I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. God has been so harsh with Job that... While his soul cries out for some companionship, some answers, his body cries out, don't get near that God again or he might strike you again. He is afraid of God's rough hand. He'd come to the place that the psalmist did. David said in Psalm 39, for I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger as all my fathers were. David, who loved God and walked with him, experienced that not all who suffer sin. And he said, God, I've come to the place I don't even know you anymore. In fact, David goes on in Psalm 39 to say this. Look away from me that I may rejoice again. Your hand has been so heavy on me that if you would just back off, turn around and get away from me, maybe I could live a normal life again. That's Job in the middle of box number four. 
He is confused. God is a confusing God at times, is he not? The same God who dwells in unapproachable light is also a God whom clouds and thick darkness surround, the scripture says. Isaiah says, truly, you are a God who hides himself. Yes, God is a God of light and he's a God of revelation. How blessed we are in this era of the new covenant to be living in that time when God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So that the disciples could say we've looked at Jesus and we've seen the father. We now know what you are like, O God. God to most of us at most times is a God of revelation. But at times, God is a God of darkness, a God of mystery. A God who hides himself from us while he's got us in box number four. And in the middle of these realities, Job is a confused man. The end of chapter 23, yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. Job says, I can't see a thing out there in box number four. It's dark. I don't know where to turn. So where do we turn? Well, I mentioned earlier that chapter 28 is in one sense a key to understanding the entire book. And it kind of comes out of the middle of nowhere in the the dialogue of Job. But chapter 28 is a poem about wisdom. And I want to just quick give you the outline of that so that you can see what Job is saying. First of all, he says about wisdom that you can't mine it. He describes the clever, ingenious efforts of human beings to dig treasures out of the earth. And his point is this, that as clever as man is in unearthing treasures, man has never been able to unearth wisdom in his own strength. The second part of the chapter, he says, you can't buy wisdom. All the rubies and gold and precious metals in the world could not purchase wisdom because its price is incalculable. You can't get it, my friends, at a seminar or in a book. Wisdom is not available by normal human means. So where do we get wisdom? You can only get it from God, he says at the end of chapter 28. Because only God knows where wisdom lives. And if you will come to God in the right way, God will direct you to discover wisdom. And the way we come to God is in fear of him, in respect, and in obedience. You might wonder what this serene poem is doing in the middle of a book full of anguish and angst. And the point, I think, is simply this, that there is much confusing about God and his ways. And yet what we must do in the middle of that confusion is not give up on God, but we must yet thrust our hand deeper into God. And when you obediently seek him, you will begin to find some Reasons and some understanding and the mists of confusion will begin to fade away. The pieces will begin to fall in place. And so we move as we seek God, as we take our attention off of ourselves and our problems to a resolution of the confusion. Now, this is not a final resolution because we're not at the end of the book yet. There's more to be said. But we begin to get an understanding of how we resolve these. And the answer is The answer is in fearing God. And there are two things in particular about God that Job wants us to understand, that he himself is coming to a deeper understanding. And first, God's power. Look at chapter 23, verse 13. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. 
He's saying God is such a great God. And actually in chapter 26, he goes on and describes through a look at nature how awesomely powerful God is. But what he's saying here is this. He does whatever he wants. God is so great in power that nobody can turn him back. And then in verse 14, he says he will complete what he appoints for me. Not only is God this great, awesome being that is in control of the whole universe, but he's appointed, he's, he's designated every single thing that happens to me. You see, here in the middle of Job's distress and confusion, we begin to see some light, like a ray of light shining into a dark mine shaft. Job now understands that everything that has happened to him has been appointed by God. God has not yet told him, in fact, never in the whole book tells him about chapter 1. And that, that amazes me. But he's beginning to understand that because God is sovereign over all the universe, it means that God is sovereign over every event of my life. God has no need to explain himself to me. God has no need to get my advice about what he wants to do. God has no need to get my permission with what he wants to do. Whatever he wants to do, he does. Because he's a great, powerful, sovereign God. And many such things are in his mind. Job says there may be more stuff out there yet that God has cooked up for me. But I understand it's coming through his sovereign power. Well, that's part of the answer is to look at God's power and his sovereignty, his control over our lives. And yet, that's only one answer and Ultimately, it's not completely satisfying to me as a person. Not that God has to give me a better answer, but I'd like to hear a little bit more than just, he's a great big bully up there that can do whatever he wants and shove his weight around, which is kind of what that first point sounds like. So here in verse 10 of chapter 23, we get what I think is the clearest insight in the entire book to a second characteristic about God, and that is God's purpose. See, when we look around at the universe, we, we see that there is purpose. And so somehow by faith, we understand that God does nothing without a purpose. But we need to be assured that the stuff that's happening to us also falls in that category. Because if there's no purpose in this other than God showing off his power, then I'm left empty and depleted. And so here in verse 10, we get a beautiful picture of the purpose of God in our trials. Now look back at verse 8 with me. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. Job again expressing his feeling of abandonment and aloneness, that God is nowhere to be found. But then look at verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. Look at that expression of faith. Job says, even though I don't know where God is, he knows where I am. Even though I don't know the ways that God is taking, He knows the ways that my life is unfolding. You see, it's like being in a room with a one-way mirror. God is on the other side of that, looking at you. He knows everything that's going on. It's just that for a while we see darkly and we don't see God, who is yet so close to us. The God who sometimes hides Himself, never absents himself. He is sometimes in the dark, but he is never in the distance. And that is an encouragement to our souls that God knows the way that I take. It's the way that he has appointed for me. But he goes on in verse 10. 
And this is a verse that Chuck Swindoll said he has quoted more than any other verse in all of his ministry. Chapter 23, verse 10. And if you're going to memorize a verse from the book of Job, this would be a great one to do. Because not only does God know what's going on with me and my ways, he has a purpose behind it. Look at three things in the second half of verse 10. When he has tried me, when he has tested me, there is a plan, there is something going on that has reason behind it. It's not arbitrary. God is not a fickle power that has gone out of control. He has a purpose, and his purpose is to test me. And the test is simply this. Job, can your faith survive the severing of the connection between righteousness and blessing? Because if it can't, then it's probably not really faith at all. And it will get burned up in the trial. God wants to see, do I really believe in him for who he is and not for what he does for me? And when you've come through that trial, you'll come through as gold. There is a purpose When he has tried us, we will come forth as gold. But secondly, look at the next phrase. I shall come out. Some of you today may be in the middle of a trial and you couldn't understand all that philosophical stuff we talked about. Just grab a hold of this verse and say, there is a day when you will come out. God will be finished with his trying of you and you will emerge from the furnace of affliction. That day is coming. There will be an end to the trial. And thirdly, he will come out as gold. You see, there is a purpose, and the purpose is this. God wants him to come out changed, not as he went into the trial. As I understand it, there's a special kind of china ware that's made in Derby, England, called Derby China. Or Royal Crown Derby China. I'd never heard of it before I did a little research on it. But it's apparently very highly valued. And it has an authority from the Queen of England herself to be produced. And as they prepare these plates and these dishes, they put paint on them. and, And then around the edges of the plate, they put this ugly, gross, sort of black, goopy stuff. And and the thing looks disgusting as it goes into the furnace. But something amazing happens to that black, goopy stuff in the furnace. And it comes out like this. The black is turned into gold. And Job says, that's what I believe you're going to do with me. I've gone into this furnace with some imperfections and some things that you need to do to to purify me and to strengthen me. And, And when I come out of the furnace, whenever the time is up and I've been properly baked, I'm going to come out as beautiful as gold. What we need to do to understand and accept suffering is not to focus on its causes, but on its results. It's not to ask the question that Job's wife did, how can I get out of this? But it's rather to ask the question, what can I get out of it? And let me give you some suggestions to the words of St. John of the Cross. And these are printed again in the sermon manuscript, so you don't have to write all this down. He said, God perceives the imperfections within us. His love is not content to leave us in our weakness. And so he takes us into a dark night. He weans us from all the pleasures by giving us dry times and inward darkness. In doing so, he is able to take away all these vices and create virtues within us. Through the dark night, pride, 
becomes humility. Greed becomes simplicity. Wrath becomes contentment. Luxury becomes peace. Gluttony becomes moderation. Envy becomes joy. And sloth becomes strength. See, it's hard for us in the middle of box four to see what those results are going to look like. But Romans 8.28 is not an expression of understanding. It's an expression of faith. That God is going to take all of these things and he's going to work them together for good somehow in my life. And I'm going to come out as gold. Well, what is our application for this morning? This morning I believe that you fit into, like me, one of these four boxes. Today you may be in this box, suffering is the result of sin. You've seen God's hand in your life and you've felt the rod of His discipline. And as you allow His Spirit to search your heart, you say, you know what? Yeah, that's my fault. God is trying to correct something in me and I I need to confess that sin and get rid of it. Because remember, you reap everything that you sow. And I'd encourage you today to, to empty your heart before God and confess to Him. He would be delighted to forgive you from your sin and to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness today and take you out from under his chastening rod. Perhaps today you're in this box that you're living in the melted chocolate world. Everything's going fine for you. I'd like to talk to you afterwards, by the way, if that's you. But there may be some that things are going pretty well. Praise God for that. Continue to obey him and walk in righteousness and and give him glory for all the blessing that he has given in your life. There may be some here today who are in this box. You are shaking your fist at God, even though you're in church today. You're saying, God, I don't want you in my life. You're an interruption. I'm going to continue to run my life just exactly as I see fit. I'm turning my back on you. I'm doing whatever I want to do. And I'm getting away with it because you've gotten away with it so far. Remember this, as Job reminded us, even though for a while we see the wicked prosper, there is an end And when we understand their final destiny, as the psalmist says, it becomes clear to us. If you will persist in your rebellion and sin against God, the day is coming when you will have to give account for everything that you have done. And let me plead with you to repent before that day. Come to Jesus and confess your sin and become a child of His so that you don't face His awesome wrath against your sin, which you will face someday unless you have Jesus' blood covering you. Or maybe today you're in box number four. You're going through stuff that you just cannot even figure out where in the world that came from. I see people in the service today who have lost spouses in in circumstances that make no sense at all. What do you do when you're suffering not for your sin? Well, there's just one simple answer to that. You reach up. And you take hold of God by faith. He's testing you. He has a purpose. And he has a time limit. As Warren Wiersbe says, when God puts you in the furnace, he keeps an eye on the clock and a hand on the thermostat. He's in charge. He's going to bring you out. Just hold on by faith to his power, 
and to his purpose in your life. The Scottish pastor Samuel Rutherford said, It is faith's work to claim loving kindness out of all the roughest strokes of God. And that's how you bless God. That's the theme of the book of Job, is to rise up in the middle of box four and to call God blessed. Because he has the power to do whatever he wants with you, and he has a purpose that he's working out to make you like gold. And remember, you're not alone in that process. There was another man whom Satan asked permission from God to test, Simon Peter. And Jesus said to Simon, Satan has asked that he might sift you like wheat. But Simon, I have prayed for you. Jesus is praying for you in the middle of box four. And Jesus goes on to say to Simon, and afterwards, when you've come out, he says, then strengthen your brothers. Would you do that when you come out of your furnace of affliction as gold? Would you turn back and strengthen your brothers? Would God give us grace to have the faith of Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards? And I'll close with a story that John Piper tells. Jonathan Edwards had just become the president of Princeton and had moved there to start his work. His wife Sarah was back in their home of Stockbridge, packing up the home and getting ready to move to Princeton. There in the colonies, smallpox broke out and began to kill many people, and a new vaccine had been developed for smallpox. People were reluctant to take it because they were afraid of it. And so Jonathan Edwards volunteered to take this vaccine as a good example to all of the students at Princeton. And he took it and it backfired. His mouth swelled up. He couldn't take any water. And Jonathan Edwards died at the age of 54. An unbelievable preacher of the word of God. A godly man. What a waste we want to cry out. Yet when his wife Sarah got the words... She wrote to her daughter these words. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. That's faith. Oh, that we may kiss the rod. That's blessing God. And lay our hands upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband, your father, has left us. We are given to God and there I am and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah. Shall we pray? God, we sang today that we want to live lives that bring glory to your name. And we do, but we confess that we don't understand the half of what that may involve. You are a great and awesome God. We bow our knees before you as the sovereign one of the universe. And many more things, perhaps, you have in mind for us. But we praise you that it is not without purpose. That you have your reasons, even when we don't see them. But we thank you for this insight today into one of your reasons that you would bring us out as gold. Changed people who can reflect your image, your greatness and your goodness more clearly to a lost world. 
Father, I pray that you would give us the faith of Sarah Edwards. That however rough your strokes are with us, we would kiss the rod, lay our hands upon our mouths, and say we are given to you, O God, and there with you we are and love to be, even if you give us nothing else. Help us to do that so that we might glorify your name in an unusual way. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.